Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a guest that um, is going to be really uh, exciting here because I think that his journey is pretty broad. So he's done everything from advertising to natural products and you name it and starting at the age of 13. So quite a long journey already, you know, at his age. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Michael Camerata. Welcome to the show today. Thank you for having me. So originally born in Long Island. So how was life growing up there? It was really good. I was on the swim team in Cold Spring Harbor, and I was doing pretty good, and uh, I enjoyed it a lot. Very nice. I mean, I like Long Island, especially on the weekends, you know, getting out of New York City, which gets really terrible in the summer. Well, I didn't realize that it actually gets hotter than Florida in New York until I was a couple of days ago. <laughs> it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So, so tell me. Tell me then, uh, how was um, how was you know life there? Like, at what point you got involved with with the games? I mean, tell us a little bit about that. When I was in New York, I was really focusing on sports and spe- uh, specifically uh, swimming. And then I actually, and I was highly dyslexic, so that definitely education uh, edu- that was not my favorite part. But uh, when I was younger, my dad also had a place in Orlando, Florida, and I ended up getting sent there. And that's when I met a guy named Jeff Bear and Clint White, who were telling me about a game called StarCraft, and I needed a computer. And I was really more into sports. And then I decided one summer, I was like, Dad, I want a computer, and these guys are going to set it up and I'm play a game. And, it, and then it, from there, it turned into 80 hours a week. So I guess <laughs> in my situation, playing a game uh, was very valuable. <laughs> And, and, and I want to follow up into that, but just one quick question here, because I see a lot of entrepreneurs that are really, really successful that also had a dyslexia. So, so why would you say that's the case? Well, I think it just it makes you grow up pretty quickly. Um, it, you definitely have to find your confidence a little bit earlier. You see things a little bit differently, and you, have, and you explain things differently. So... Um, being that, and then as you get into like middles, well, from the very beginning, you, you know, you're different and then it just gets more and more. And so it's like, you just have to be able to harness it. And I think if you do it correctly, that builds some skills that become very, uh, valuable in business. 
because for the people that are listening so that they get an idea or the visual of, of what it was like to have dyslexia, what, what was that experience for you? Well, in the beginning, when I was a kid, I was like really insecure. It's because it's like when you're a kid and you're trying to learn how to read with all the other kids and you can't do it that way, or you're trying to go do a math formula and you try and do it the way they're telling you, but you can't get to the, the answer that way. And then eventually you figure out, it's like, wait a second, what is the question they're asking me? And then answer that question. You may not be able to use the same formulas and you may actually have to build your own formulas in math or to do it. But, um, or you have to, it's really the confidence. It's like you get your confidence is like destroyed off the bat because you learn differently. Um, probably more like by people talking to people than written format. I think so. That's the, the area. Like, I think it had a lot to do when, uh, when you used to be able to learn by communications. And then when the paper mills came and started making books, books is not exactly the best thing for probably people with ADHD or dyslexia to learn. And I think it's, uh, it requires time, but it's really about building that confidence because in, in the beginning in the school, it kind of destroys your confidence and you have to build it. And then that you you're really able to take that knowledge and apply it to a lot of things. Absolutely. And I guess entrepreneurship as well. If, if you're not able to believe in yourself, why would others believe in you? Right? Yeah. It gives you that drive and too, also. So it's like, the, and I think that it, that's because you see things completely different. I didn't realize how unique I was until I was in an organization with 160,000 people. Then you start realizing, okay. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So then let's fast forward here and to the moment that you really developed this love for gaming and, and especially StarCraft. You started to think about perhaps a way to monetize that. So what, what was that process like for you? Well, the StarCraft was something I started giving my comments because I got really good at it. I put a lot of time and effort into it. I got into a gaming group, a club, and it's one of the top clubs. And there used to be a thing called like Battle.net and, and also one of the top ranked players on it. And and from there, my curiosity is like I wanted to learn how to make a website. So some of the people in the group taught me how to build websites and ask a thousand questions. And then I wanted my own server and then I got my own server and I started building other websites and the websites started becoming popular. And, and the real time when it turned into making actual income was when I had a server bill that I, that I was, uh, let's say my brother was helping me fund because I caught him doing something my dad would kill him for, uh, when he was in college. And, uh, uh, we made a trade for a puppy and $2,000. I went <laughs> and I, I got my server. And then my dad found out about it because my brother didn't give me the puppy. And we had an argument. And the next thing you know, my dad's like, what are you spending all this money on? And then he flipped out. And then I was like, well, I have like 5 million people a day going to my websites. And it's like, and it's really, and he's like, well, it sounds like you need to learn how to monetize that. And then that's when I had to learn how to monetize it to be able to pay for my uh, server bill. And then I was very lucky that uh, <laughs> at right time, right place and, and right abilities uh, and group of uh, collaborations. And we made a very successful hosting company. Because how, how, what year was this? I was, well, I started making websites when I was like 11, 12 and 13 is when I had like my first exit. Uh, so it was 13, 12 and a half, 13 years old. Got it. Wow. And this I'm was like 33 now. So. so got it. I mean, because back then there's not, there was not as many users as today on the web. So 5 million people, I'd say that's quite significant. Oh, it's huge. Um, it was, it, it, we had over 10,000 hosting accounts. And back then too, 
So my web hosting company had over 10,000 hosting accounts, which were primarily promoted by my web, my gaming website. So it was like I would make a website where people could share uh, different mods of games or files and then website that people can communicate on. And like they're like fan sites for gamers. And wow. uh, and then actually some of the sites, there's one that's called Gaming MV, which actually became part of GameSpy back in the day. Um, so it was kind of like a cool time. And, and back then web hosting, you can make a lot of money. Now you pay like GoDaddy, like a couple bucks a month, but they used to cost like 200, 300 bucks for that. And so we were, it was a very successful hosting business and we automated it because we didn't have the money to pay for a whole bunch of staff initially. So and I think I heard that this is when you made your first million. Is that right? I was very successful at a young age and actually between it's kind of looking back at it now and, and seeing things, I was like, it, it was right at the merge of an industry. And, and it was kind of cool because it launched me into a couple different industries right off the bat. Like it took, thanks to my brother's seed capital, capital, uh, it, it wasn't that expensive to start initially, but, but uh, web hosting, Think about that. 10,000 counts paying like a hundred bucks a month is, is not a bad amount. Yeah. And, and having all these investment funds are like, we want to buy your account and I want my servers. I worked so hard to get those servers that I was not going to give them up. So uh, <laughs> they got the hosting accounts when I, I, I sold those ones and I had the servers, but I also had a whole bunch of contracts because I was promoting the web, the web hosting company by giving people free hosts, big websites, free hosting in exchange for all the advertising rights. So then why did you sell? Why did you sell this business? I mean, it seemed like a really nice income stream for a 13-year-old. Well, I wanted to well, I wanted to get more into online advertising. So I had like downloadable applications and programs I made, uh, pop-up blockers, and and so it's like it was more along the lines. I wasn't seeking to sell it. The group of investors wanted to buy it, but I saw dedicated servers starting to come into the market and I was primarily shared hosting. So if people wanted to buy the shared hosting accounts, I thought that was a good idea uh, because dedicated servers, which is ultimately the reason why you can pay like nine bucks a month now or two bucks, um, is because people get their own servers and sell the space off of it. So you literally selling dedicated servers was competing with the shared hosting space. And shared hosting meaning like you have a server and then you sell a lot of different accounts. A lot of people use the same server. Uh so you're reselling that server hundreds of times, but people started selling servers to people who then started giving space to their friends. And then that's what started bringing down. And then now with the cloud, uh, it was actually probably the smartest business decision. I didn't realize I was doing at the time. Yeah. Uh, so in hindsight is really good timing. And then the online advertising business was, in the, uh, that was before the IAB and all that. And it's right at the, the beginning of it. And it was pretty uh, uh, like we had, it allowed me to launch the web hosting company to online advertising because I had all the contracts. Like at one point, like I built a thing called Ultraboard. Uh, it's a messaging board system that like Counter Strike was using uh, back in the day, and and on their site. So I had software and a lot of things I was building, and I just kept building. I really, I wasn't really thinking about the uh, the financial part at that point, and uh, I just wanted to be able to make sure I can fund what I was like the different software and hire people and. And then it, over time, became quite the business. So then, so then you sell this uh, web hosting business that came as a result of your love for StarCraft, and then you go into uh, advertising, into online advertising. So tell us about this 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 part of your journey. So then, you were like fourteen or fifteen, or or how old were you when you were building this up? 
Well, I had the advertising rights. I just wasn't monetizing them uh, okay. at that time. I was just promoting my hosting company. And then yeah. when I got out of the hosting business and I had all these advertising contracts, I'm like, what do I do with them? Um, and so what I ended up doing, my dad introduced me to a group in New York uh, called CI Sales. They're Cox Interactive. They sell the online advertising rights for Cox Communication, and they sell like local radio. That were my like, first sales team. Um, and then they started selling the inventory on these sites. And then I very quickly realized that the advertising business was emerging and, and, uh, and then that became pretty big. We had a, at one point in my network, we were up to 150 million uniques. And that was when I was 17 years old, wow. uh, per month. And so it, which is huge at that time, uh, on the web. Um, and so, uh, we were providing other ad networks. I think my specialty there was being able to like sell to networks who sold to people to advertisers, as well as being able to sell directly to advertisers. Uh, and that's when we started making like software for people, like get rid of your like pop up blockers and probably a lot of the stuff that people got annoyed by back in the day. But it was a very successful business in advertising. Uh, and that's and then that's when I started building companies to market on our advertising network. Got it. And just out of curiosity, like, what were you pulling in at 15? Say again? Like, what, what were you bringing in in terms of uh, income when you were 15 that year, for example, just, you know, out of curiosity? Uh, well, seven. I guess the best way to calculate it is that I was generating, looking back at it, my accountants were, like, quite amazed at it because we I was generating between the period of 17 to um to say early twenties is generating like over a hundred plus million dollars in different wow. revenues. So it's like, but keep in mind it, the web hosting was a vehicle that actually got me to learn how to invest in companies. It got me to learn how to build companies because I started knowing that as, so in the web hosting, the, the shared hosting was being, uh, starting to diminish. Like you could try, used to be able to charge like $500 and $200 and a hundred dollars per month per account. As dedicated servers became popular, the shared hosting became less popular. Then in online advertising, we were signing contracts, web hosting contracts, where it's like, I own all your online advertising rights, and I'll give you a 20% commission of what I sell. And I may throw in free web hosting for you. Then by the time I was 17, it was more along the lines of the publishers, the websites getting 80% of the contract. They give you 20% of the commission, and they want your free, friend free web hosting as well. So the margins were starting to shrink. And so, uh, and there was a lot of acquisitions. Um, and so the, the thing was, I was like, okay, my margins are shrinking. The competition, everybody wanted to be an ad network now. Everybody wanted to be a hosting company. So the pivot I had to make was like, how do I start building things that I can then be my own advertiser? That was like the basis premises when I was 17. And that's when I started investing in different companies and building companies. Uh, and that's when I learned about due diligence, uh, and probably started getting a good accounting team and a good legal team, uh, around me because the first wave of it was probably not the best. Um, and so I think that's the part where I started really starting to learn. Uh, and that's where random occurrence was founded and, 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 and that's really where I started getting the most business savvy before it was like, it was like, completely like how do i make i was making money to build servers to use for my gaming and like uh and it was just like a collaboration then it's like then i started realizing oh my over time 
if you don't continue to adapt your business model, uh, your margins start to shrink. And that's kind of where I was like, uh, ultimately where the biggest pivot was, is, uh, is, is starting out investing to be able to invest in other companies. I started learning a lot from investing in companies, made some mistakes. Uh, and at that point, it's kind of the, where it all came together. So that's when I started really focusing on the business attribute of it and the due diligence and investing and understanding corporate structures. Um, and then <laughs> at 24, I always wanted to manage a rock band and I ended up managing a pop band. Um, and, and getting into that in the entertainment industry. And that's really where I learned that, okay, the first couple companies I started were service-based businesses and service-based businesses over time, the margin shrinks and you have to con- offer more services to your customers. And that's where I made the pivot into brands and products. Like if you put the effort into building a brand and a, and, and a brand that has a purpose and meaning and, and it can help like, the simple thing was how do we get aluminum-free deodorants, and and that's how I got into the product world and started building the the brands. And I think we'll, that, Michael, and we'll we'll get to that in in just a little bit. But just to to, to just finalize and and wrap up the the phase with the online advertising. So when you said that you were the because I mean I'm sure that the listeners are probably like in shock when you were bringing in a hundred million at you know let's say between seventeen to twenty one. Was that, did you have like a team around you or, or, or what did it look like the operation? Well, I wasn't focusing on the grossing revenue. Like I was more along the lines of like, how do I be the biggest ad network? And I was more in being competition, like trying to focus on that. So do we have employees, tons of different employees? Like that first handful of employees were people I played video games with when I was actually to this day, my CTO of Schmidt, he's CTO of Schmidt now, um, was actually one of, we had a, it was part of helping me in my web hosting business when I was 12 years old. Uh, so it's like, I've had a lot of great employees that have came over the years, but again, it's like the accountants and stuff along those lines and investments. Like you just start making deals at that point in time, I was just about making deals and expanding and, and we're doing it. It's like group of friends. Like, I think, I don't know what the exact calculations were on that, but like, I know people nowadays are like, wow, you did all that. I was like, I honestly wasn't focusing on the top line. I wasn't focusing on that. I was focusing on innovation. Like I wanted to have the coolest servers. I wanted to have the best technology. I wanted to have the best environment, mainly because I also wanted to use it. So I was building products for myself and, and we were monetizing. And then back then, online advertising was a huge market. Like uh, and people spend like $10, $20 a CPM. Um, and when you have 150 million uniques, you're doing good. Now, keep in mind when we started it, the margins were 20% to the publisher website, provide the website and 80% to the ad network. Very quickly that changed to 80% to the publisher, 20% to the ad network. And now it's probably even less. Uh, So so, at the peak, at the peak, Michael, how many people were uh, helping you? I don't even keep track by head, but like we have probably now we have over 50 plus that are deployed overseeing probably a couple hundred companies. Um, and so it's like in my family office. Okay. So it's, it's definitely been something that that was the biggest key though. I think that we did well in the web hosting company is like six people managing 10,000 accounts. And the only reason we did that is because we automated the software. 
So we didn't have to have somebody manually set up each person's account when they ordered their web hosting account. We automated. So as soon as they put in the credit card information, they validated their information, then it would automatically set up the account. So it, it was it was something that that was probably what allowed us to be that successful because the web hosting companies on average had a couple hundred people and we had like maybe at max in the web hosting like 15 people. In online advertising, we probably had like we had Cox Communication helping sell. I had an internal team of probably 30 some people that were helping sell the online advertising. We had software developers. We had partnerships. And I think the biggest thing that I learned is collaborating with others. Like if you share, if you try and take all the revenue to yourself or you try and build something all by yourself, you're not going to be successful. It's like that. That's where you start to realize to be able to scale, you have to be able to have the right partnerships, the right employees, and the right technology. Got it. So then whatever happened with the online advertising operation, did you guys sell that or what happened? We ended up, uh, I think... Some parts of it, we sold assets on it and some of the contracts. So we started selling out different contracts. So like we would have like one of the biggest websites in the world. Like, all right, at one point in time, we had like adcritic.com or stuff along those lines, uh, and which actually became part of AdAge. Um, and then we had game gaming sites that became part of GameSpy, which now became part of IGN GameSpy. Um, and so it's like we heated, sold a lot of contracts, merged a lot of contracts, but my focus was really starting to be on investing in the companies because it was in the beginning part is raising capital and understanding business and then starting to make investment and then growing businesses. And then it really started to pivot into investing in the companies. Got it. And did you have like names for first for the, um, a web hosting company and then for the online advertising company, how did you name them? We had a few, uh, like from Metaka networks, easy hosting to, like we had a ton, like it was really again. I it, we had a lot of different corporations and stuff on those lines are set up. But in fact, I had like an attorney that I that was a referral of a friend. So we set up a couple of corporations. But I had like different websites like Gaming MV, uh, which then became part of GameSpy, and and it was more along the lines of the websites that I was focused on. Yeah. But we did, definitely did have it was done a lot under like EZZ Hosting and Metaka Networks, and there's a. I can't even keep track of how many organizations and companies I have now, so it's kind of even hard if you go back that far. And yeah, no, I hear you. So, what what were your parents thinking? They think that, I think they thought I was nuts because my dad was more of a corporate guy his whole life. He uh, started off uh, working at McCann Erickson in Chicago, and then he got transferred to New York, where I was born. Um, and then he worked at PricewaterhouseCoopers. He was a chief marketing officer there, but he worked his whole way up uh, through the big corporations. And I'm sitting here like without a business plan, without really any focus. I was just throwing things against the wall to see what stuck. So like when we tried to talk about business, uh, I'm trying to explain what I was doing. But remember, he didn't even know what a server was when we first started out. <laughs> I was kind of like he was ultra conservative and I'm completely the opposite conservative. It's like I didn't know what the gross revenues were till like after the fact. Like I didn't even know like I didn't see I didn't wasn't even like. The, and then I was making a huge amount of money in diverting product at one point in time. And like, uh, I was all over the place to be quite honest, <laughs> building companies. And, and if anybody, like, it's kind of funny. I was like, anybody who wanted to help out or be part of it, the people that I met playing video games, I was like, let's build companies together. And we built tons and it was more like a fun thing and a community thing. It was like my first way to really connect and, and build a community. Um, like they were my friends. Yeah. I hear you. I hear you. So then, 
you were mentioning you went in and managed a boy band, which, uh, you know, probably this was the time of Backstreet Boys and, and NSYNC and all of that. And at that point, it's kind of like where you incubated the idea of what would be your next uh, big thing. So, so what happened? Yeah, so I always wanted to manage a rock band, and I and I had a lot of friends here in the entertainment industry. And at that point, uh, an opportunity came up to manage a group called Big Time Rush, and I jumped into that. And obviously, it wasn't a rock band, so I didn't quite get the goal. But what I did learn was, wow, that's where service business was a, a whole wide opening. I learned about the consumers. I learned that a, a TV show can spawn a music group can spawn a a phenomenon essentially and then at retail be very successful with licensing so the the big time rush had a nickelodeon tv show and it also had a uh, music group with sony and there's where like i started learning listening to consumers because you get to see them hands-on they would like they would go to the guys and be like stop using aluminum it's killing you and deodorants they're very concerned and stuff along those lines with the guys and and then i'm like wow if you can take a TV platform and you can take media platforms and you can create a group and it resonates with the consumer and then you can create opportunities at retail, then I was like, okay, wait a second. The longevity of making a product is and the impact that you can have on a planet is much greater than just being in the service business. So primarily all my investments prior to that point were more service-oriented investments. This is where I started had random occurrence pivot and just started creating brands. And that's how ultimately I got into natural products. And then uh, we created a company uh, called Schmidt's Naturals. Okay. So let's talk about like how you brought that company to life. Yeah. So how, the, how did that happen? So I was looking for investments in the deodorant space in the natural area mainly because of the consumer concerns about natural deodorant. And meanwhile, my life, like I went from being very healthy and active as a sports to then getting a business, becoming very unhealthy in, in the management side. And then I started to get, started focusing on my own personal journey to be healthier. And the, we were looking for a natural deodorant company. I looked at a crystal company and I looked at a lot of different companies in that space that are big and huge, but the consumer reviews weren't exactly there. Like the crystal company lasted too long, wasn't as effective. There's other natural deodorants that are in a stick that didn't work. And then I found uh, my partner in this, that, that was Jamie. She was selling a natural deodorant in a jar at this time, uh, and she's been working on a lot of different formulas. Um, but she was selling a product in a jar in Portland and in different regional retailers and stuff like that. So my simple thesis was I called Costco, and I was like, how big of a market is a natural deodorant or a deodorant? And they told me a number, and I was like, wow. So my thesis was, Put, let's start, me and Jamie start a company. Uh, I'll fund it. We'll put that uh, deodorant into a stick and we'll sell it at Costco. Like that's my, my thought because it's the biggest seller of products. And what I didn't know at that time is that the reason why her product, that formula in a jar was so successful, but wasn't mainstream is because no one could figure out how to put the, the powder-based deodorant, which is what the key is, powder-based plant-based deodorant into a stick because there was no co-packers that could do it. So we actually had to build a factory. In 2015, we started with four people, 1,200 square feet. Uh, a few months later, it was 15 people and 5,000 square feet. Then we doubled pretty much every six months. Um, and then by the time we were up to 180 people, and we had to turn, we had actually had to build our own machinery at first. Uh, and then we were able to retrofit other people's machinery. 
And we just in 2017 is when we finally were able to start training Copacus on how to handle our formulation. Because how were you financing the operation there? It seems that you guys were growing very fast. So how do you capitalize the business? Well, the unique thing that I've always done fundamentally with businesses is always have your vendors, your partners. Um, so I was in a good situation, though, with random occurrence to be able to have capital and stuff that I've accrued over the years that I invest into my companies and my partner companies. So capital wasn't necessarily the issue for us at, because I've always built businesses that can generate, that can build, like that, that we can grow out of revenue. I think the problem that some people have, and I had when I was younger, is that I always wanted to raise money more of like a stamp of approval than actually the needs. Like what I realized, if you can take, if you can break down your company to different elements and say, this is what my cost structure is, and you can involve your cost structures either with like, hey, we're just starting this company. Can you give us net 90 instead of prepaying? Or like just building your cash flow model from the very beginning and involving those as your partners. And that doesn't have to be financial partners, but work with your vendors. Um, and then very be, be extremely disciplined on what you use your money for. Uh, like we would, I invested into the company. We obviously got into machinery and we jumpstart, but then getting it running. So then it starts generating revenue and then being, then managing that cash flow appropriately. So it's like when I go into a company, I do a lot of micro investing in random occurrence in the micro brands and stuff along those lines. So 20 grand here, 30 grand here, hundred grand here, maybe a couple million, some of the investments, but it's really focused on, uh, on, on building and accelerating brands that have purpose and meaning. But the it, it was cash flow management, so I think we were very good there. And in 2017, I was really more focused on going to the IPO route. We had like 11 offers from different strategics, um, and at that point, I was actually going to uh, raise capital with different partners because obviously, going to IPO, you have to at that. And we were growing rapidly, like quadrupling every month. So, um, and we we're launching. We went from like farmers markets and regional retailers and natural to all natural to then target from target into uh, now drugstores, Macy's, Bloomingdale's, Urban Outfitters. We, we crossed all categories. We didn't, we weren't limited to just like natural stores. And when we got into Costco, obviously that was a huge volume mover of deodorants and we finally got there. So it was, it was more about the cash flow management. So being very strategic at the initial investment I am, so I invest directly into companies and I bring in management teams that I recruit over the years to help focus on making sure that money goes right into things that can then generate revenue and then managing that revenue with the pace of the growth of the business. Okay. So then what was uh, what would you say was like one of the biggest challenges during this journey? I think the learning manufacturing process was probably the biggest challenge because we didn't know what we had at first. We didn't know what made the, I didn't completely know what made the formula was so unique in the beginning uh, until we tried to, until we had to build that uh, manufacturing capacity to be mainstream. And I think the previous natural deodorant were liquid based formulas and those were, there's machinery out and co-packers to do that, but there wasn't the machinery to make the powder based deodorant. And the unique thing that about our powder based formula based is that we also use high-end essential oils. So to complicate it a little bit more is that we, we don't use synthetics or fake fragrance or anything on those lines. We use pure essential oils that come from like Bulgarian flowers that get extracted and distilled and then put into essential oils and then put into the formula. So each fragrance or our fragrance or essential oils and the base formula require different 
tuning in the machines. So I think the most hardest process was the manufacturing attribute. Got it. Got it. And I guess the um, you were talking about the fact that you guys were growing this with with its own revenue and that the fundraising was more for stamp of approval type of thing, which I I've seen many 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 times. No? So how was the revenue growing uh, year over year so that the listeners get an understanding of the growth? Ah, uh, we were less than a couple hundred thousand in the beginning, and then we went to a couple million, like within the uh, within like we went from a couple hundred thousand to a couple million, and then in the tenfold that, and then above that. So it's like, obviously it's owned by Unilever, so they don't disclose the financials yeah. But uh, now. But um, we started out like in a couple hundred thousands, and, and very quickly we became, within a year, in the millions, and then it became tens of millions and, and a lot higher. So, uh, so it was definitely like a uh, high triple-digit growth. So, so why did you decide to, to sell to Unilever? be honest i was completely against selling it at all i wanted to go ipo and there was a it was and p and g lots of different people uh made offers on it and actually uh made like 11 offers from strategics and then like around 20 some fund 28 some funds that were trying to invest into it so i'd buy it and then the pivotal moment was I got a call from my dad being like, you need to go meet with Goldman Sachs. And you have to meet with Unilever. And I was like, I've been through all these meetings with these strategics. I want to build a plant-based natural, a natural alternative to traditional products. I want to go IPO and I want to scale it globally. Like I was dead set on that. He's like, just go to New York and sit with them. And so, uh, and honestly, I didn't know much about Unilever at that time. And I didn't realize how big they were, to be quite honest. Unilever. Um, and my idea was like, I'm going to pitch him all my ideas of what I'm going to do in IPO. And he's going to tell me how many things I'm doing wrong because he's going to want to sell me to sell to him. And I'm going to learn how to adjust my IPO strategy. That was my theory for that. That 30-minute meeting ended up turning into like a six-hour meeting. And he was showing me the new Unilever things. He's like, why don't you do all of that here? We can instantly give you into the global distribution. We can help you cross all these categories and we can build this brand. And I was, it actually was weird because then I was like, my God, the guy's a better salesperson than I thought. Like, I'm, now I want to do it. And it was completely, <laughs> it was the weirdest situation because then I was like, I went home to my hotel and I, and I called Jamie. I was like, I don't know. This guy sounds really good. I may have been oversold. I don't know. Like, uh, now I'm like, and then the next morning he calls me at like seven in the morning. He's like, uh, it's a global citizens concert. It was, uh, was, uh, was, uh, perform- was there and he's taking his kids to it. And he's like, Go, let's meet at the American Museum of History and then catch up. I was like, okay, good. A second take at this person. So maybe it was just like a bad day. Um, and then he calls me and he's like, he, they can't get out of the global the citizen thing and back in. And I was like, and then I see that Jane Goodall, Dr. Jane Goodall is speaking there. So I happen to be family friends with Dr. Jane Goodall. And so I called up uh, her because she was actually speaking at the Global Citizens Concert. And she gave me, she's like, you mean with Paul Pullman, Unilever? I was like, Paul, no, case. He's like, well, Paul and Unilever, they're a great company. I'm like, Jane, seriously? A strategic company is a good company? Like, how is this possible? Now I'm like, maybe I'm like in a coma. And <laughs> so she gives me her backstage passes and, and I go and I meet with Case. And then Case is like, oh, yeah, Paul and, and, and Jane are on the same UN committee. And I learned about the sustainability programs. And then I'm like, well, Jane, if you're gonna, if I'm gonna go down with this, the, this, you're gonna come with me. So she created actually Lily in the Valley, 
where I sent a deodorant, which is in retail now. Um, and, and Paul Pullman ended up becoming like my mentor in the sea. And he was a, he's a global CEO of Unilever for the last decade. Uh, now it's now Alan is, and he's a good guy as well, but they, Paul and, uh, and Alan and, and Case and Peter became kind of like mentors to me. And it was actually where I got like my PhD in business. And it was, it was all because of a fluke chance and Dr. Jane Goodall that I actually had to the worst part about the process was I was going down the IPO path and I actually called money from one of these hedge funds that I had to call up and say, I kind I changed my mind. Uh, we're not going to take that investment. I know you spent all this money in legal. Don't worry. We'll reimburse you for legal, but I'm going to sell the company to Unilever. Uh -huh. and, and it was kind of an awkward situation and there was definitely some stressful moments in that. Yeah. Uh, but it was, it, it was a last minute pivot. And, uh, and then Unilever was very, like, we launched the, like an AI at Unilever. We built out from into, we've expanded the line and, and we, and I learned a lot. Global structures went all over the office and they've been very, they've been like family to me. So it's kind of like my college experience. Really cool. Because at the time of the acquisition, when you signed the documents and everything, how big was uh, uh, Smith's? Oh, we can't disclose that. Um, how many employees did you have? Over 180. Got it. Got it. Really cool. So then after doing this uh, PhD, as you said, in, in business with wonderful mentors, you're back at it again, leading Neptune Wellness Solutions. So, so what are you up to here? Or yeah. how did this come about as well? It, it was an opportunity that emerged. And what was really unique about it is because learning what I learned about like fragrance or essential oils and, and natural is that the extraction is at the, the extraction methods are probably one of the most crucial parts to personal care, home care, and consumption items. So whether it be taste, flavor, or smell, extraction is where the quality is made in, in the formulation process. And so I've been looking at the cannabis sector for, for different investments and opportunity, mainly because I've been focusing on plant-based ingredients and plant-based products and consumptions. And so I was looking for an entry point. And then out of the blue, I got an opportunity that came through mutual friends where they contacted me about Neptune. I started looking into it, and what I really liked about it is actually Neptune wasn't a cannabis company to, from the beginning. It was actually been around in 1999 and 1998, where it was actually in curl oil omega-3s and doing extraction for them. So they actually understand the supplements and, and that process uh, of the extraction, and they actually had patentable technology that was done in like the omega-3s, and they set the gold standard. They launched from the biggest brands in omega-3s. And then they made a pivot to sell the curl oil business and then get into the cannabis business a couple of years back. And what was unique about it is a lot of the, 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 tech, the IP that they had from extraction and knowledge from the supplements and the curl oil business apply very well to the cannabis business. And, in the, and, me, and a lot of people think when they, when they talk about cannabis, they think like consumption, like smoking, uh, pills uh, or supplements and stuff on those lines and edibles. When I look at the cannabis and I look at this plant, it's a very unique plant. It's a plant that has CBD and a lot of different cannabinoids and flavonoids and a lot of research is still coming and then now even be more accelerated into it, where it has different like antibacterial, antifungal. I look at this plant as something where it's not just a consumable business, but I look at all the personal care items that you can enhance, whether it be hemp, which makes things potentially make things more and more and all the different values. So the science 
that's being developed today um, and research today has such a huge impact, not just on the consumables, but on the personal care items and the home care items. And even in, and also the extraction, you can make high-end fragrance essential oils, which as bigger companies are switching out of synthetic fragrance and then natural fragrance, it put this company in a very good position to capitalize on several different things. One, the research and plant-based ingredients going beyond just uh, 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 consumables, but into uh, into personal care and home care items. So that's how this came about. And when I had that opportunity to become the CEO and I even invested into the company, um, it was something else that I, that, that I, it was a hard thing to, to, to uh, make that call because I love Schmidt and I, and it's a brand, but I, after we got to the global launch and I trust Unilever to death. So they're like family. So I was able to, to, I felt that it was the right time for me to be able to jump in, into this emerging market and really be able to add that level of quality, transparency, and, and knowledge into. Because this is a company that started in, in, in 98. And also it's a company that, is, uh, that went public as well. Is that right? Yes, publicly traded on the TSX and NASDAQ. Got it. Got it. So how many employees do you guys have? Uh, we're over 100 and it keeps growing. So as we, we actually just recently announced an acquisition in North Carolina of Sugar Leaf. So we have our hemp and CBD facility in, in North Carolina. Um, and we also have our huge plant in, in Sherbrooke in, in Montreal. So it's a Montreal-based company. Uh, and we also have... Uh, 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 so we're, we're pretty sizable, but we're actually growing really rapidly. So it's kind of a unique situation. It's kind of like... Uh, Obviously, uh, a good size and a good. And what I like about the entrepreneurial spirit, it's like the team has been around. A lot of these people have been at the company for five plus years, six plus years, and they've had a lot of experience in the supplement business, the extraction business, and they they come a lot from the pharmaceutical side. So it's a really good management structure, and 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 people from the factory level all the way up and down. So it's like. It was definitely a unique situation and publicly traded. And, and, you know, I was wanting to run a publicly traded company. So, again, it was right on par with and to be able to deliver plant-based ingredients and make traditional uh, products alternatives. So making essentially a plant-based alternative to a traditional product, but now do it not only just in the States and and have and just with uh, a handful of products, but actually be able to utilize cannabis ingredients and, and and plants into the mix is a whole different thing very cool very cool and normally the um for the guests that i have on the show i i ask them you know this question and and i would like to hear what's your answer so so given what you know now in in business right so from really making tons of money tons of innovation you know at 13 20 then to doing your phd in business being in a large corporation like unilever as well and now running a publicly traded business, if you had the opportunity to have a chat with your younger self, perhaps that uh, a kid that was 13 years old, and give that a little kid one piece of business advice, what would that be and, and why before launching a business? I think there's a couple of things I would tell myself, but mainly it'd be like, one, I wish I would focus on getting confidence early. Two, don't look at trying to do things the way people are telling you to do them. Look at the way that you feel is the best. So try and uh, your way may be better. So don't try and always compare yourself to others. And at the same time, it's just like don't rely on others to build your uh, to for gratifications. Because like I think 
some of the company, some people go and they try and raise money more for the sat, more for like a stamp of approval. And they rely on like, even like in the beginning, my attorneys at that level in the beginning and my attorneys now a lot different is you, when you hire people and all that, don't be afraid to, to voice your opinion. Uh, so I think the simplest way would be get your confidence earlier in yourself. Don't always follow the patterns. Be okay. If you, if you feel like you should be doing it a different way, then it's probably the better way to do it. And then three, surround yourself with the best advisors you can have, but don't rely on them. You have to make the decision in the end. That's very profound. So, uh, so Michael, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Well, I'm on everything from Instagram to, uh, to Facebook to uh, uh, on the web. So I guess on my personal Instagram, it's Mike at Camerata. Um, and then obviously Michael Camerata on uh, LinkedIn and uh, Facebook. Wonderful. Michael, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the DealMakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.